that Luke 13 through 16 explore without doing that, then it's, it just isn't going to all hit right. And so um, not everybody who'll be here will have heard you say all the things you say about stewardship over the last eight years. And so I generally defer to the wisdom of my team. So we're going to do some of that today. So let me read the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly callings, this is for all Christians, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house is, has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. If, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. <clears throat> My voice is going to be a little bit worse than normal uh, because I spent the last two days coaching um, our club JV volleyball team in, uh, in a weekend tournament. And so I do a lot of screaming when I'm a coach because it helps the girls play better. Um, <laughs> And uh, in the last several years, I, um, I coached my girls' teams, uh, usually as assistant coach, because I just didn't have time. I didn't take the time to be the head coach, because it's a lot of extra stuff. And so this year, I had a chance to coach both my girls on the same volleyball team if I coached this club team. And they didn't have a coach, so there was an opening. And I was better than the alternative, which was no one. And so, uh, so I, I took it, and, um, and then like the first day, they, they promoted one of my daughters up to varsity, which was— kind of defeated the purpose, but okay. So, <clears throat> um, and so we went to this tournament, and the, and the club did better than they'd ever done. Um, the, the varsity team won second place. They beat teams they had beaten six years, and um, they were super thrilled, and our team did, our team did pretty well. And so at the end, every, like, there, was, there was much rejoicing, and so the, um, one of the girls on the JV team um, post-snap-tweeted, Instagrammed a picture of herself uh, and this quotation, because—and here's, here's why. Because one of the things I asked myself when I started coaching the team was, what do these kids need from me? Right? Because part of the reason we let kids play sports, hopefully non-idolatrously, is because <clears throat> life is very complicated, right? And when you do things in life and you fail, there's often consequences for it, which are unpleasant, right? To say the least. But in sports, unless you like massively injure yourself, it doesn't really matter, right? Like your parents clearly, they think it matters. Everybody thinks it matters. It doesn't really matter, okay? Even if you're like a state finals, it doesn't matter. You're hitting a ball around. Who cares, okay? The whole—but but us thinking that it matters and rehearsing in the drama of pretending it matters helps us because it allows the pressure to come into our lives. So we want to succeed, but then we fail, and we create this fake environment in which kids can go through this process of learning how to master something through failure, with humiliation, the way life goes, <clears throat> without actually having to bear the consequences of failing at life. So it's a, it can be very helpful, right? And so 
There's, there's two things I think, therefore, developing people need. And so kids obviously are developing, and of course, so are Christians. Obviously, I'm going somewhere with this sermonically. <clears throat> One is they need a context for imitation, right? Because if you want to learn something very complicated as a human being, it's really tedious to learn all the different facts and then how they all fit together and blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. Usually it's a lot easier for another person to be like, you do it, this is how you do it. You like that, you like this, right? And you just— you just watched 10,000 things happen just now, right? But like mentally, you're like, oh, you kind of do that. I got it. And then you just, you approximate it, and then you improve it, and that's imitation. That's why imitation is incredibly effective and efficient. People talk about imitation as being like a bad way. Like, no, you should learn all the, this stuff. You don't really need to learn all the stuff for most things. Most things, you just have to learn how to imitate somebody who does it well. And so that's what drills are for and all practice, all that kind of stuff. But what I felt like they also need for me is like, they need something that makes a world that is so complicated it'll make you emotionally implode, like, simple enough to bear, right? That's why sayings that are meant to, like, organize our lives that are simplistic and actually they deny the complexity of the world are, are unhelpful. Like, I've heard people say before, you know, God doesn't want you to be unhappy. Is that true? God doesn't want you to be unhappy? Well, it all depends on what you mean by it right? No, God doesn't want you to be unhappy if you're destroying your own life. He wants you to stop destroying your own life so you can be happier, right? But does God want you to do immoral things so that you don't have to be unhappy? No. He wants you to do what you're supposed to do different or have a different attitude about it, right? So it's like, it's one of those sayings like, it seems like it makes the world simpler, but it doesn't. It just gives us the excuse to do whatever we want and to deny the complexity of the world. What those, these girls need from me is they need something that makes the complexity bearable. <clears throat> right? Because it's complicated. So what one of the things that happened was, as I was driving my home, home my daughter's in the back, like, kind of using her, her magic square, and, like, she said, Dad, this is so funny. The girls are, are like, snapstagramming stuff like your sayings. Because what I determined what they needed for me on this team was a like three to six sayings that defined our ethos. So no matter where we were in any particular moment, they knew the sort of team we're trying to be together. And so this one girl um, did this thing and she said, she wrote, you can't get rid of your butterflies. All you had to do is make them fly in formation. Coach Nick. Right? <laughs> And of course, I stole that from like the Penn State coach or something. You know, that's not original to me, but it's helpful. And I saved that for the tournament. That, I sprung it out on that day. I was like, listen, girls, they're just about to go out there. I was like, listen, girls, you've got butterflies right now, right? You can't get rid of your butterflies, but you can make them fly in formation. And they were like, yeah. Right? Sometimes something that— that makes the complex simple. They were, the, our girls, our varsity girls were going up against this hitter who was hitting about, se, about 60 miles an hour, almost every hit, which is fast, okay? Like, it'll hurt. It'll hurt you. And this one girl who's a really good hitter but doesn't hit the ball that fast, on our team, like our best hitter, she's, she's getting ready, and I could tell she was nervous. I was like, come here. I was like, listen, the scoreboard doesn't know velocity. <laughs> right? Your kill can go 30 miles an hour slower. It's still a point. She can hit the ball 170 miles an hour. It's still one point. Right? And she was like, she looked at me, she's like, yeah. <laughs> right? And then, okay, so then this other girl um, 
whatever that is, goes, to do something athletic, you have to be in an athletic position. That's one of my things. Because like young, especially young athletes, they'll be like this, and then they're supposed to do something, and then they have to like, they can't move. Right? I was like, listen, if you want to do an athletic thing, you got to get in an athletic position, or you're not going to do anything athletic. It's just, if you, I, one of our things that they didn't do that isn't an official thing, I just say it all the time, is you can't beat physics. Right? And then, so then another girl's like, he, he, fail trying, Coach Nick. Because that's like our number one team saying, fail trying. Listen, we're all going to be like that little rabbit from Zootopia, okay? Like, there's no, there, everybody's going to be a trier. There's going to be like, we're not going to fail standing around, right? The dumber you look on my team, the better you are, right? Like, I want you sliding with your leg up here by your ear, trying to do something. I don't care if you jump into the net and get your, like, you're hanging by your arm at the end of the play, and people are, like, taking pictures of you to send out onto social media. Like, the worse you look, the better you are. Like, we fail trying. You're just not standing around. We're not, we're not spectators. This is a sport, for heaven's sake, right? So then one of our best hitters goes, die hitting. That's one of our, that's one of our things, right? Because there's a lot of things in life where there's a certain skill you get so good at that you practice. But really to go to the next level, you got to get better at something totally different that's harder. And so you're going to look dumber, and you're going to get beat by the people who don't want to get better. And volleyball is like that, and it's hitting, because volleyball hitting is one of the most complicated physical activities that there is in any sport. Because you're trying to jump. First of all, you have to jump. You're trying to jump as high as you possibly can, while not drifting forward, while running 10 feet forward, right? while hitting the ball towards—away from moving targets, with two people trying to block you, receiving a set from a relatively incompetent teammate who has just received a pass from a relatively incompetent teammate, right? And so like—and you know, like, the ball is moving this way, you're moving this way, these people are moving this way, and you can't touch the net at all, right? And you're 14, and you're like barely tall enough to get your hand above the net to begin with. Like, you can imagine how these girls appear. It's not pretty. Right? And it's—you're better off just staying on the ground or just, you know, bumping it over. Let the other team fail. You know what I mean? And there are teams that do that. And the teams that do that will not win one game next year. They won't win one game. Because we may—we may—we may die hitting this year, but we're going to cram it down their throats next year. Right? And we'll look stupid for a little while. And so I tell him, I said, listen, you go out there and we die hitting. We know how to pass and we know how to set. You better get that right. And I don't want any serve failures. But if you look like an idiot hitting the ball, God bless you. That's what we're doing in JV. That's all JV is for. Right? So listen, my girls lost some games, but they died hitting. They died hitting. And next year they're going to be ready for the varsity jump and they're going to hit the ball. And some of these girls are going to get a rude awakening when they play us. Okay? And see, life is like that too. There's all kinds of stuff that like, to get to the next level, you gotta, you gotta look stupid. You gotta do stuff you've never done. You gotta, right? And every one of my sayings that I give them, and okay, so break them emotionally is one of our sayings. (laughs) They really like that one. But, you know, one of the things about volleyball is you don't get to hit the other team, right? It's like one of the only sports, except for maybe like golf, um, where you like, you don't get to like physically intimidate directly other players. 
Like, I'm used to playing basketball and soccer, right? Like, like I specialized in, like, slide tackling people. That was, like, my whole childhood. So like, I was, like, the best slide tackler in, like, my area of New York State. It was so fun. I tried to go for, like, three tumbles after I got them, you know? And in volleyball, it's all what you do and how you carry yourself to intimidate the other team. Like, I was like, I don't want to just win the first set. I want to so emotionally infantilize them by winning the first set that they don't even try in the second set. That's the goal here. And they're like, yeah, right? And so, but always in a sports room, like, wait, I don't put up with, I don't put up with, like, trying to put other girls down. I just want them to believe they can't beat us because we destroy them, right? Because then I'm helping their coach. Because their coach is supposed to coach them how to not be emotionally fragile. Right? Which I have a whole other coaching thing for that. Here, okay, so the point is, sorry, this is a long introduction. Okay. <laughs> the point is there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who look at everything in the Bible and everything there is about Jesus. And I can say, you need to have a Christ-centered identity and a Christ-centered mentality. Like I said, for the last two weeks I preached. And you hear that and it's like, it's like, it feels almost like standing in a field of fireflies with little blinking lights flying all around you, and you're just trying to catch them all. Because you have to catch them all and put them in a jar and put them in your heart. Like all these, all these truths, and you're like, how do they all go together? And how do I get them? Like you, you, like you need, we need like some, is there some way that the Bible, or where Jesus himself simplifies all there is that's true about him and all, all the ways that it interrelates into a way that doesn't deny the complexity of reality, but actually makes it bearable, right? And now one way is through imitation, simple imitation. As you read about Jesus, you get a feel for him. And you look around and you can see other people in the local church who apparently have a feel for him, and you can imitate them. So being part of the local church, a local church that wants to grow in godliness— Finding people that you can imitate actually is one of the most effective ways to figure out what it means to have an identity rooted in Christ and a mentality rooted in Christ. But the second thing is to have, is to have some summaries that are faithful, that make the complexity bearable. They don't deny the complexity. And this series is, is kind of about that. And it's, it's a summary that I think could help you enormously if you believe it, and yet it's a summary that it doesn't seem sexy because it uses a word that's utterly archaic, but that we don't have a replacement for, right? And so, um, so here, here's what I want you to know, and I know this doesn't sound like the sexiest sentence in the world, but this could change your life forever. And we're gonna, I want to spend, we're gonna spend like eight weeks kind of filling this out, and there's, there's 87 weeks of material, but I'm gonna try to narrow it down a little bit. Right? And that's just, you are a steward. You need to convictionally embrace the identity and mindset of a steward. You are a steward. If you believe in Jesus, if you belong to Christ, you are a steward. Okay? So we probably should start with defining that word. Right? Biblically speaking, a steward is someone who owns nothing but governs everything. Somebody who owns nothing but governs everything that's under their care. That's you, by definition. You live in God's world. In the ultimate sense, in relationship to God, you own nothing. That doesn't mean I don't believe you can have private property. In relationship to another person, you can own your house. Then that means that the other person doesn't own it, and they can't come in and raid your fridge just because they were in the area, right? But in relationship to God, 
You can't own anything. But God also doesn't do stuff with your stuff. It's in your hands. You have to govern it. You have to use it. You have to, in the language of Genesis 1 and 2, take dominion and rule. In that sense, every human's a king and a slave at the same time. Right? The, the New Testament word that gets used for this that's most common translated stewardship until the English translations gave up on that word, which I'll get to in a minute, is the word oikonomia. It comes from the Greek word oikos, which means house or household. And nomia, which is a version of nomos, which means law. Like antinomianism means I don't, I don't obey any laws, right? No, so nomia, or um, uh, nomia there means um, law keeper. So oikonomia means like the keeper of the law, or of the house. The law keeper of the house, right? The, the household servant. This is the same, um, the same word that we get our word economics from. It's the functioning or the, the, the developmental functioning of some sphere of something. Does that make sense? Now, when I went to seminary, I went to this school called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and they had this on their thing, like a good classical training seminary. They, of course, made their saying in Greek, right? And so I was a first-year Greek student, and, which means really bad at Greek. And so I read this. I could read it because I knew the alphabet. Pistiothenai to euangelion, right? And so I knew euangelion meant the good message of the gospel, right? And the pistis word group usually means faith or faithfulness. So I was like, oh, it means believing the gospel. That sounds good. That's a good saying for a seminary, right? Believing the gospel. You should at least start with that, right? But the problem is, is that that's actually not what it means. That's incompetent Greek, right? This is what it says in Second, 1 Thessalonians 2.25. The Apostle Paul says, um, On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's what it means. Right? What should you tell somebody who's being trained in a seminary? You're about to be entrusted with the gospel. You need to take that very seriously. And one of the things I like about the British system, it's one of the only things I like about the British system, um, is that they actually call, like, their governmental officials ministers, and they call their nonprofits trusts. They, call, they literally call it a trust. So if you run a nonprofit, you run a trust. That is, people have given money and time and assets and things to create this thing and that you're a part of. And so if you're running it, you're running, you're running a trust. The reason you exist is somebody's trusted you with it. It's not yours. You're entrusted with it. You don't own it, but you have to govern it. Somebody's got to govern that thing. That's why all those people put all that money and time and effort into it. Right? I mean, how, how would you feel if I behaved as though I owned this church? Like the way I behaved, and like, I need another raise, and we got to do blah, 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 and I'm going to, I'm going to paint the room whatever color I want, which never happens, you know? After, like, r really quickly, you'd be like, I don't think he knows what he's doing, or what he's here for, right? Because being a pastor is like a really good example of somebody who has a trust, owns nothing, but governs a lot, has to do things. Like, you wouldn't think it was cool, good pastoring either, if I was like, listen, it's God's church. I don't want to presume to preach any sermons or, like, come up with anything to do or anything. Right? You'd be like, do your job. Do your job. Right? And you'd be right. Now, in—so in the way we get the word stewardship, and the reason why 
why this is relevant is because we have these words like manager or fiduciary or um, a mentor or a governess that are people who have some kind of trust where they're supposed to govern something. But we have no word in English anymore that's holistic enough for somebody that governs an entire household or an entire sphere and yet owns nothing but governs everything. We just don't really—personal assistant. There's nothing that really works for that. In, in Old Britain, one of the things that people know about England is that in the 1700s and 1800s, they like conquered most of the world. And they, people think of England as this like conquering nation. Well, one of the reasons they became a conquering nation is because for about a thousand years before that, everybody conquered them. And when everybody conquered the British Isle, they made some deposit of technology or culture so that the British culture advanced much rapidly than almost any other culture in the world, right? It, it, it happened like they got horses from Denmark when Denmark invaded them. Then they got better ships when Norway came in and took over. Like it, that's how they became so powerful. And so for more than a thousand years, they were one of the most oppressed people on planet Earth. One of the only places in the world that's been conquered and counter-conquered more times than England is Israel. It's right in the middle of all these different landmasses, and everybody goes through it, right? It's a great place to spread a message from. It's a very difficult place to defend, right? And so the old English word for, was stig for a hall, right? Because you don't really want to have— like, if it's like 800 AD, you don't really want to have your own house. Because when the Vikings come through, they're just going to burn you to death, right? It's much better to have like your whole extended family in this big hall. And everybody lives in this sort of glorified barn, and everybody has kind of their own loft. Like if you've ever read Beowulf, right? Everybody's in this huge hall, right? And so Stig is the word for hall or oikos, the whole household, the extended family. And then the old Saxon Germans, when they came in, brought the, the German Werder or warder or ward, right? So you got—and that meant guard. So Stigvard meant a guard of the entire household. The person in charge of the defense of everything. But by the 14th century in England, it basically meant somebody who was in charge of everything. And the major government officials weren't called secretaries. They were called stewards. In fact, one of the families that became kings and queens in Britain is the steward family. The family that was in charge of everything and then ultimately married their way or usurped their way, depending on the version of the history you like, into the royal family. Because they were close to the top. Because they were in charge of everything because they were the stewards, right? Now, that's the closest English word we've got to that word, which is the biblical one. And a, a lot of non-Christians and Christians alike in the 20th century said, one of the problems with worldliness or totalitarianism is that when people don't like what you believe, they actually get rid of the words that have the thoughts you need to think in them. I don't know if that's a complicated thought for you or not. So, um, you can see this with Aldous Huxley um, in, I think it was 1984, where it t they had the New Speak Dictionary, and they would get rid of all these words that they didn't like, and they would put in new words that they did like, so that you could only talk in certain words, and if you could only talk in certain words, you could only think in certain words. Does that make sense? And what happens is if—see, we don't—in modern worldly America, the idea that you would govern something you didn't own on behalf of a greater master— is a fundamentally religious and spiritual and Christian idea. The culture in which we live has no, has no desire for such a word and doesn't create any such words anymore. And so sometimes what that means is to, just to be able to think the right thoughts, you have to rehabilitate a religious word like 
steward. Now look, if you want to say oikonomia, that's fine with me. But the only English word that I know of that carries the full weight is steward. And that's why I would rather rehabilitate that word than use a word like manager that has a lot of liabilities that doesn't really work, right? And you can see this, for example, that the concept starts very early in the Bible where Joseph is sold into slavery. He's sold to this guy named Potiphar. He serves in his household, and it says that Joseph brought so much blessing to his household that Potiphar didn't pay any attention to his own home because Joseph was in charge, right? Now that may sound like a strange concept, but imagine that you're like Potiphar and you're a statesman, right? He was in charge of Pharaoh's household. He was, the, he was the head of Pharaoh's guard. That's a lot of responsibility. That guy goes to work for 14 hours a day. He doesn't want to ho- come home and talk about oats acquisition for the horses. Or like what's going on with the chariots. Or like, you know, like he doesn't want to deal with stuff. He just wants to come home and not be in charge of anything. But what it also means is this. An oikonomia, a steward, is in charge of what is dearest to the master. Right? If you're an oikonomia, if you're God's steward, you're a steward over his own household. His family, his assets, what belongs to him. The master in most of these stories is out taking care of things that belong to other people. They're, they're acting like statesmen, and they're leaving the steward in charge of their home. What's dearest to them. And that's what it means to be God's steward. Okay, we need to keep moving here. Okay, so if it's true that in Christ, in the deepest spiritual sense— you own nothing but govern everything. Then one of the first emotions that ought to occur to somebody who knows God as he really is, is terror. Because how could you possibly run God's house well enough? Right? And it's, and it's not just that God would have like a lot of rules or a lot of expectations maybe for how he would want his house run, but like your life is part of that stewardship and, and you've been stealing from God your whole life. I mean, you can think of the gospel in terms of like legal debt and so on, but you can think of it in terms of numerical debt because you're his steward. What have you been doing with God's money, including every minute of your life? And the answer is, you've been stealing from him, right? I mean, that's just one way to think about the gospel. And so the gospel could be said something like this. Let's say I own a business, right? Or let's do it the other way so that you don't feel attacked, right? You own a business and I work for you, okay? And so you go and you're working on this other business you own, and I've been running this business as the steward over the whole business. And then it's like three years has gone by and you get your official audit and you find out that we're $350,000 short and somehow I have nice cars and stuff that I didn't have before. Okay? So there's, there's two things that might happen, right? I should go to jail, but I should also lose my job. I should lose my capacity to be productive. I should lose what I do with the days of my life. I should lose all those positive things too. That's what I deserve. I go to jail negatively and I lose everything positively, right? Now, if you thought, may, you maybe, if you thought I had, I had repented and maybe you left me in jail for a little while just for good measure, right? If you were to behave like Jesus, you might write a check for $350,000 to pay the business back to get me out of jail. But then if you were actually going to act like Jesus, you would even give me my job back. Okay, that's the gospel. The gospel is not just God takes you out of the penalty of sin. He sets you back in your original divine given human purpose. Your sal- you're not just saved to go to heaven. Your salvation is for something in this life. 
that has significance for eternal life, right? Ephesians 2 says that you were, you are made in Christ God's workmanship to do works that he's made beforehand for you to do, right? Your salvation is for something, and that is for you to receive back your stewardship. And how, how do you govern in such a situation? And I think one of the most fundamental things to recognize is this. That Galatians 5 in particular says that stewards are free from the law. And you could say, if you wanted to make that colloquial, you could say something like this. That you are not mainly to see your, your stewardship as subject to being audited as you are to see yourself as an investor. And those are extremely different mindsets. Right? Like, what would you do with your finances if I told you in two years, you were going to get a full audit from the IRS? Right? You would be very careful. <laughs> you would probably hire a professional accountant. You'd probably hire somebody who's an ex-IRS agent if you had enough money. You'd have them go through all of your books. You would make sure everything was— you'd spend, you would spend money, time, and effort making sure that you wouldn't lose. Right? That's not how an investor behaves. That's how somebody who's going to be audited behaves. And you see, if, if you think of yourself as a steward, as somebody who has all these assets that God has given you, everything that's in your life, and that God is going to come and he's going to audit you, right? That's just going to lead to fear, and it's going to lead to indecision and inaction, right? But in, in most of the cases in the Bible where Jesus goes, goes through this, he, he doesn't behave that way. The best example, I think, is in Matthew 25. It's also retold in Luke 19, which is the, the parable of the stewards, where, where the master gets three different servants together, and he gives them a certain amount of money, and he says, I'm going to leave. I want you to invest this, right? And there's one guy who buries it, and when, the, and when the master comes back, he says, listen, I knew you were a hard man, and you reap where you don't sow, and you take things that you didn't do. And I was—therefore, I was afraid. And so I buried the money in the ground, and so I have every penny of it. Here you go. Right? Now, the master kind of blows up at him and says, you wicked, lazy servant. Like, you, you thought I was—right? He gets really mad. Now, you can look at that parable two ways. Either one, that poor servant knew exactly that his—the guy was crazy, and then he blew up at him, and like, no matter what, he couldn't be pleased, right? Except he was pleased by the first two servants right? See, the, what would you do, right, if you had enough money to have a financial planner, right? And you, and you, you put money into your 401k or something like that. You gave it to a financial planner to invest, right? And then you went to your financial planner a year later, and you said, how are my investments doing? And imagine your financial planner said, you're so greedy. Like, you, you expect me to, like, make all this money for you, and like, you know, like I can't, you know, like, you didn't, you didn't do this work. You didn't do the investing. You didn't, like, how can you expect this from me? Like, if you have half a brain in your head, you'd be like, I gave, I gave you all my assets to invest. Your whole job is leveraging my assets to make your money in mine. Like, like your whole argument is a denial of your whole role. Right? You see, that's what made the master so angry. He said, look, if you would have even put it at the bank, so I'd gotten like 1%, I would have been happy. You did nothing. Right? And, and think about this. God, and, and like, and then it says, he throws that servant out into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now think about that. This is the, this is clearly not the smartest servant. He only gave him one talent instead of five or ten. He's the most disenfranchised, disempowered, probably not the sharpest knife in the drawer, right? 
And God, like, the God character picks on him horrifically, right? Which makes the parable fantastic. Because who's the person most likely to do nothing with what God has given them, with all that God has given them? The person who thinks they're weak. The person who thinks that they're not that smart, or their career's not that important, or they didn't go that far in school, or I'm just doing this, and these people are doing those big things, and right, that's the person who just kind of sits there and just does nothing, and just feels bad about themselves, and listen to me. If you are a human being, you have the image of God in you, imprinted on you, reawakened through Christ, empowered by the Spirit. Look, I don't care if your IQ is 81. You have the most powerful, astonishing capacity of everything. Look, the dumbest human being is smarter than the smartest machine. Like, they, do, you don't, do you realize they can't make—they can make machines that can read x-rays for lung cancer, but they can't make machines that can mop a floor. Right? There are things that we can do as human beings that nothing can do. Right? You, and you'd be like, what, Nick? Come on, though. No, seriously. One of the things that is most lacking on planet Earth is the willingness of a human being who actually can feel and exist to listen to another human being that needs to have their existence recognized. Okay? Listen, if I got a very advanced computer doll and sat it in front of a person, and that computer doll had the artificial intelligence of an intelligence of like an IQ of 240, right? And I put it in front of somebody hurting, and the computer was like, what would you like to tell me? And they gave really good counseling advice back based on certain counseling therapeutic algorithms, right? Do you think that this person is going to go away feeling much better? The answer is they're not, right? Only a human being can do that, at least for another human being. In Galatians 5, it says that Christ has died to free us from the law. And it, it, you might think what that means is to free us from— to free us from um, the slavery of sin, but it's not. It's that. The earlier chapters of Galatians are about that, that we're freed from the slavery of sin. But in chapter 5, it says in verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and don't let yourself be submitted again to the burden of slavery. In verse 6, it says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That doesn't sound very legally bound, does it? And he explains, starting in verse 16. Now listen to this. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature or the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the sinful nature or the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you don't do whatever you want. But, listen to this, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, think about that for a second. Jesus died and rose from the dead for us to be converted and to be filled with the Spirit. So that by being filled with the Spirit, we wouldn't live towards our flesh or our sinful nature. And also, so we wouldn't be constrained by the divine, perfect legal law. Well, why both of those things? Why not just the first one? And the answer is this. Every law, by definition, has liabilities. 
Every law tells you what you can't do, and it doesn't allow you to make a decision based on knowledge and virtue in situations on the basis of your character. And so laws are by definition limiting, right? That's why you give more rules to employees you don't trust. And when you really trust employees, you take away as many rules as possible to let them take care of more things so you can think about less. And you see, what Jesus is trying to create are creatures, stewards, not slaves, that aren't governed by the law. Because by being filled with the Spirit and growing in virtue, they can make choices. Choices he can trust. And choices that have risk and that can't be governed by rules or law. Because they're choices that are investments. Investments are risks and they require courage. And they're just not easily governed by little rules. I mean, think about this. Um, Most people, you know, who like read, you know, listen to TV, you think, people think of investment bankers or like investment, um, uh, like investment capitalists as people who like just, they just spend money on whatever they want and they do whatever they want and like they make money off the worker. And it's really just the opposite, right? They have to bet on things that are nothing on what will become something. And they're wrong almost all the time. Right? So, so if, if you're, like, if you're a capital risk investor and you get one out of 20 right, you're a celebrity. You're a celebrity. And, and you might put $20 million into, like, 20 different companies, and they could all fail that year. Right? But see, what, what, the, what the investment capitalist knows is that it's true that if you always lose everybody's money, they'll stop giving it to you. That's true. But there's a truth that's even deeper than that. If you don't invest in something that isn't, there will never be anything. And so one out of 40 becomes like a Google or an Epic or a a thing. And, And then there's thousands of people who have jobs and all these families can pay for their lives and buy shiny cars with leather seats and like put their kids in club sports and blah, 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 blah. All of that. And they, and then they turn back at you and they hate your guts. Right? And yet there's this very small group of people in the world that knows that if you don't lose almost all the time, no one ever wins. Right? And you can only do that if you can take a, take a, a couple of people and you give them piles of money and no rules. That's the only way it works. And then you just give more money to the people that do better and less to the people who do worse. And it produces a global economy. It's unbelievable. And actually, that is much more like what you're really called to be in Christ. Because almost everything that you will do for moral and spiritual reasons, you cannot be guaranteed it will turn out the way you want it to turn out. Many things you will do for the right reasons will go wrong. You might make a hundred investments in the name of Christ. Like stuff that you do because you're a Christian, because you believe the scriptures, because you believe certain things are right. And, and 96 of them might go wrong. And you, you just feel like you've lost all that time and energy and talent and life and energy. Right? But listen, it says in Luke 15 that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who comes to repentance than of 99 that don't need to come to repentance. You get 
one person comes to Jesus and you get a whole heaven party, man. Like you get, it's a 400,000% it's a payoff. You still win. You hit it once out of a hundred and, and it's a win. And see, here, here's the thing. As a Christian, you've got to learn to think that way. You've got to learn to think as a steward, as somebody who's not about to get audited. Okay? The audit already happened. You failed. You deserved hell. Jesus paid for all of the debt of your sin, wiped everything clean, counted you righteous in him, and placed you back into your God-given stewardship, made you in his workmanship so that you could do good works. And he never intended it for it to be only making disciples. We can't all be making disciples all the time or everybody starves to death. Or dies because of their own excrement piling up in their house. Right? The, the world must flourish by a thousand different means. And so Christians are not just called to be disciple makers. They're called also to be salt and light. That is a preservative and a light bringer in all the areas of human life. And so part of your stewardship is to go into different areas of calling. Whether they're—I mean, last hour, I had both a university provost, or like one of the top people at UW who works with the state government, and a retired electrician come to me and say, that was so helpful. Like to think that I am a steward over this thing and I need to try to create flourishing. One of them by like wiring people's boats and another one by figuring how to spend millions of dollars on education in our entire state system. It's all the same thing. But there's a huge mindset difference when you realize you're not under the law. You are counted a virtuous servant who is a steward. You are supposed to govern everything in your hands as an investor and not like somebody who's about to be audited. Jesus has taken away that fear and called you to be his investor. And he expects most of your investments to not produce anything. Remember the parable of the sower? 75% of the seeds don't do a thing. Third is, and I'm going to go quickly through these two. We're not, you're not halfway through the sermon, okay? So three is stewardship is a role, not a standing, right? Because you may be like, well, Nick, isn't the role of a steward like the role of a slave? And this isn't as encouraging as maybe you hoped it would be. But actually the stewardship is a role. It's actually not a standing. And you can see this in the Bible. Some of the stewards in the Bible are slaves. Some of the stewards in the Bible are sons in the household. They just haven't inherited it yet. So Luke 15 is a good example right? One of the reasons why the older brother's arguing with his father, his father says like, look, everything I have is yours. I mean, not yet, but he's the son. He's the heir. He's not a slave. He talks to his father like he's a slave, but his father's like, you've never been a slave? You got a bad attitude thinking you're a slave. You're my son or his daughter, right? And then in, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Right? Are we God's servants? Absolutely. Absolutely we're God's servants. In terms of authority, he has all the authority. And if there's a contest of authority, we have the authority level of a slave. Right? But our identity is that we're sons and daughters in Christ. We're heirs, says Romans 8. And everything that we're stewarding, we may not own it right now, but we have a stake in it forever. But in addition to that, Jesus says, 
yes, you are a servant. But I'm not going to call you that anymore because that's not the metaphor I want you to think in. See, that's what he means. He says, I don't longer call you that. He's saying, I don't want you to think in that metaphor anymore. I want you to think in this metaphor. I've called you my friend. Now, don't define for yourself what that means. He tells you what it means. He says the difference between a servant and a friend is the servant doesn't really know the heart or the purpose or what's going on inside the heart of the person who's in charge. You become a friend when the person in charge says, come here, I want to tell you what I'm really doing here. This is what I'm really doing here. And then you feel like an equal, like you're in there, you get the vision, you know what's happening. And what that means is you can be freer in your stewardship. When, the, when God tells you what he's doing, you're even freer than free from the law. He's giving you his fundamental principles and what his kingdom is all about. And then he says, just go and behave like you're my friend. That is, obey my command to be the steward who brings about fruit. Remember, it's in John 15. The first half of John 15 is whether or not the vine and the branches are connected and producing fruit. When he says, you're my friend if you obey, he's saying, if you are that vine that's in me that's bearing fruit, that's what I want from you. I want you to be an investor. I want you to be a farmer who in faith puts seeds in the ground every year, believing that they will grow rather than doing something that's more certain. And then the last is that stewardship is your identity in Christ, not because you're Jesus' servant, but because you actually share that identity with Christ. Right? The passage in Hebrews 3 that I read to start with says, it says, the reason why Jesus is greater than Moses, Moses was a faithful servant over, did you catch that language? Over all God's house. Do you catch that stewardship language? See, was Moses a prophet? Yeah, but Moses was a lot more than a prophet, right? He was a military leader. He was a savior of a whole people. He was a genocide stopper. Like, he was a person who talked to God and like, couldn't just deliver prophetic words. He could deliver bread and water, man, out of stones. And like, he guided people in a new country and he was a military general. And like, he was a lot of stuff. He was in charge of everything that God was doing. He was over all God's house, right? And then he says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses because he's a son, and he was faithful over all God's house. You see, you see, Jesus' identity more than anything else, even his identity as Savior, right? His standing is that he's a son, but his role was he was a steward of everything that God was doing in all his house which included for him death on the cross and resurrection from the dead and the creation of the church and the sending of the Spirit and his ascension and everything that he did. Everything he did, like what unifies his miracle making and his teaching and all of the— he did a lot of different stuff. He didn't do all the same thing all the time. He wasn't just a preacher. He did tons of different things. And what unifies it all, right? Hebrews 3 says what unifies it all, like Moses, is it was all under one thing. He was the steward over all God's house, just like you. Yes, we are all stewards over subdivisions of God's house. But that's what we are. We're stewards just like Jesus. And it also makes us all the same, too. Right? We are all stewards. Whether you're, um, you know, whether you're cutting lawns or trying to reform the University of Wisconsin um, educational system or, you know, being a doctor or being a food runner at a restaurant— 
if you are engaged in some action of human flourishing and trying to bring to it the character, the salt and the light of the gospel, seeking to help make disciples or encourage disciples along the way, you're doing the work of stewardship. And what the body of Christ is meant to be is all kinds of people with all kinds of different oikonomias, participating in all the different oikonomias of culture, whether government or whether commerce or education or media or art or fashion or anything. All infiltrated as salt and light, bringing some good thing and trying to help people become disciples. We become the body of Christ together, given to the will of God and give, given to bringing in and living for the kingdom of God. So there's two things I want to leave you with. The first is, you're an investor and you can't keep your life. So throughout this series, I'll have this candle here burnt. And so whenever you stop paying attention, it'll be here. And I want you to, to picture that, like, this is a metaphor for your life. Like, there is no—you can't save anything. Right? You're, you're, you can be like, well, I have a—I've got a house. Yeah, well, you're going to die, right? Somebody else is going to get your house. Right? And, I mean, Solomon said this. He said, you can build kingdoms, and you can do all this stuff. You can be the wisest man on earth. You can do all these things, and then you're going to die, and some fool is going to come after you. And wreck everything. Or forget you. Or both. And so, you see, if you realize that, if you realize that there, there is no such thing as holding on to your life, there's, there's no such thing as that. You can invest your life or you can waste your life. Those are your options. And when I say that, I don't mean you have to be working explicitly for Jesus every minute. Because there's no steward in any story that Jesus ever tells who doesn't get to make his living and even have rest and leisure as a steward. Jesus has no problem with a steward who becomes wealthy being a steward. He has no problem with a steward. Like, when he tells stories about bad stewards, he doesn't say, well, you know, like, they made a living from serving me. Right? You can, you can make a living while you do the thing God wants you to do. That's not wrong. And you can go on a vacation. You, you're commanded to rest periodically. That's not what he's getting at. The question is, fundamentally, the orientation of your heart and who and what you believe you are. What are you? Right? Are you a steward or are you an escapist? Right? And the second thing is, I, I want, in relationship to being part of a church together, for you to think about what it would be like if we all did this. It means that we could be maximally diverse and not sit legalistically in judgment on each other for all the things, because we'll recognize we're all going to have different oikonomias, right? We're all going to have different stewardships. And one stewardship isn't better than another. They're all callings of God, right? It says that the work—we are God's workmanship made to do good works. What, you know what the next line is? Who knows the next line? That God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Our oikonomias, our stewardships are all predestined. You don't know what they are, so that's like it's all drama for us. But God is predestined it not so that we couldn't do otherwise. He's predestined it to organize it. To send us all where they, we all need to go. Predestination just means good governance. Well organized. Well dispersed. And so what I want you to do is, if you haven't got one of these, take one of these pieces of cardboard home with you. There's three marks in it. Cut those marks out carefully. 
And then do something on this cardboard representing your stewardship. What is the oikonomia that God has given you? What is your stewardship? And what are you going to do with it? I don't care what you do. You can paint it. You can like paint little storks on it if you're having babies. Like I don't care, right? This is just an opportunity for you to grapple with that question. Right? I'm, you can write, I'm going to steward this. And that's right. I don't care. And then you're going to bring it back. And they're all going to get put together on that thing out there and to make a bridge. And then I'm going to walk over that bridge like on the last sermon at 40 feet in the air. Just kidding, not 40 feet in the air. <laughs> right? And if we, if we get enough of them back, I'm going to walk over it. And the whole point of that is if everybody embraces their stewardship, then we allow the mission of God to go forward. It bears the weight of what the kingdom is supposed to do together. So take one of these home with you, and I want you to think about it and use, use this devotional to figure out what you're doing. And like, if, if you were to spend—if you didn't do hardly anything else but sleep and breathe and bathe and do the minimum for the next eight weeks, and you grappled with your identity as a steward in Christ, if you did that, there is a future version of you who you are much more in favor of than the one that doesn't. It will change your life. It will change the way you look at things. It will deepen you. It will strengthen you. It will do what it says in Hebrews 3 needs to happen. It will help you hold to your courage and your hope in Christ. And so— it, like, it will drive you to realize that whatever you're scared of, you can still move forward and invest the way God wants you to. You can get your butterflies flying in formation, right? You'll realize that to do what God needs you to do, you need to focus on reading the scriptures and growing in godliness, right? If you're going to do a spiritual thing, you need to get in a spiritual position. You need to realize that most of your investments are going to fail, but it's true, just as much spiritually as in sports. You need to fail trying. You're an investor. And there's something that God wants to make you more than what you are. And leave some things behind. And step into something that you're meant to be in the image of God, right? You gotta die hitting, man. You gotta take that next step to the next thing. Right? I don't know how to apply crush the other emotionally. Maybe, maybe, maybe demonic realm or something. I don't know. Right? But the point is, is that you are a steward. You are a steward. The world is complicated. Jesus is complicated. But there are some truths about Jesus that if you believe them, they will make complexity bearable. And one of them is, you are a steward. Let's pray. God, as we turn our hearts to you, and as we, um, as we sing to close, and as we prepare to do the hard work of enjoying each other at the barbecue. God, we pray that you would work in us as a people who embrace just this simple idea that we are all stewards, that we own nothing, but we're in charge of everything. We govern everything in our lives, that, that you freed us from the law because you want us to be investors, not people terrified of being audited. We recognize that we've been given righteousness in Christ, and so we don't have to fear the divine audit. We can give ourselves to the work you've made us for. And we know that we, though we have the position of a servant, we know that we are already called not just slaves, but sons and daughters and heirs and friends in this work. And that we share this identity with Jesus himself, all of us together as one people.
So we pray, God, that you would draw us up to yourself and draw us towards each other and persuade us and convince us that one of the ways we imitate Jesus is to believe convictionally that we're stewards. In Jesus' name, amen.